Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, the newly named Poet Laureate of the State of Indiana. This is a real treat. <laughs> Adrian Matika. Adrian, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Michael. It's so good to be here. You are going to be the Poet Laureate for the next two years. What does the Poet Laureate do? Well, the Poet Laureate, the poet laureate has a, a pretty excellent mandate. We get to spread poetry around the state of Indiana. Um, and how that how that takes shape is entirely up to the individual poet laureate. So the outgoing poet laureate, Sherry Wagner, who has done an incredible job, um, focused quite a bit on doing workshops um, in nature and bringing writers out into the world and having them do work in those environmental settings. Huh. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Um, and she's just, I should also shout out Sherry being a graduate of the great uh, MFA program at Indiana University, too. So Sherry has done a wonderful job as Poet Laureate, and I hope to be able to um, support some of the same programs she did, but I also have a couple of other things I'd like to push. You uh, can do that. Yes, yeah, 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 I can pretty much do um, whatever I want in, in service of poems um, programming-wise. Uh -huh. And so one of the things I would like to do is... Um, create an archive, an Indiana archive of poetry. Hmm. And so this is going to be a digital archive, and anyone who is a, a resident of the state of Indiana or uh, has been a resident can submit their work to um, audio and text. So do you have to have the uh, state-issued poetry license <laughs> to do right. this? You have to have a poetry patch with yeah, the state yeah. of Indiana on it. No, you know, I think what we're going to do is you have to have been, have lived here for f five years at some point, I think is what we were, we've been going back and forth about the, the, the guidelines for it. Yeah. And the, the Indiana Arts Commission for their, their fellowships requires something similar. So we were thinking of maybe just following in their footsteps. Good idea. Um, but uh, yeah, anybody who, it, it could be you know, professors, poets on the street, performance poets, it doesn't matter what kind of poem. And we're gonna house all of it at the, in the, the State Library. Neat, yeah. and it'll be uh, accessible online, we should hope. Yes, it'll be. It's my my plan is to have it be both an, a, a record of Indiana uh, poetry, but also um, a resource for teachers. So it'll be accessible for anyone. A neat challenge. Yeah, it's going to take a little bit. What so. is with Indiana University and all these poets? There's you. We had Ross Gay on Big Talk a, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. What is it? You know, there's something magical about Bloomington. Um, I'm convinced that it's not so much the program itself as, as it is the community here. You're and, kidding. I'm absolutely serious. That's why. Yeah, there's something about the way that, um, the way that the environment here, the air, the atmosphere of uh -huh. Bloomington, it, it encourages writing. I don't know how else to explain it. I, I, I saw it when I was an undergraduate. Yeah. And I've seen it since I came back. It's really, it's magical. And you've been to other college towns. <laughs> uh, you spent time at Carbondale. Yes, I uh, That's where you got your MFA in uh, creative writing, Southern Illinois University. There's no magic in that college town. What about <laughs> other college towns? Ann Arbor, say, or oh, those, well, they're all fine. They're all fine. But yeah. this is Bloomington. But this is Bloomington. <laughs> you know, I, I sound like such a home uh, home team fan right now, but it's true. There is something really special about um, both our artistic community, but also our uh, cultural and intellectual community here. 
who reads poetry? <laughs> Who does read poetry? Well, uh, statistically, 6% of the population. Um, but I think it's a lot more than Where that. Where did you get that? Uh, there was just an, uh, uh, in the NEA. Um, wow. They did a, uh, I think it was last year, they did a study about the reading habits um, of Americans. And, they, and Americans as readers have greatly decreased in the last 10 years. I don't even know if that's, that's grammatically correct. Uh, the number of adults who are reading books on their own is uh, lower now than it was 10 years ago. Wow. And so um, I don't remember the exact t- statistic. It was like 50%, 56% of adults have read a, a novel in the past year, 10 years ago, and now it's down to like 45%. Well, and that's no good. No, not at all. And, and Not the, for us writers. <laughs> no, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, we're doing the work in, in a more exceptional way than I think it's ever been done. And um, I should say that when I say the work, I'm talking about poetry. Yeah. Right now is a golden age of poetry. There are so many uh, yeah. young poets writing tremendous, tremendous work. Hey, I wonder yeah. if the 1980s, 1990s trend, fad, whatever you might want to call it, for poetry slams mm. helped make that happen. Oh, it's, it's definitely a part of it. I mean, you know, the Poetry Slam was and still is um, one of the best venues um, for giving voice to uh, young people who haven't had a voice before, right? I mean, one of the great gifts of poetry in general, but in particular performance work, is that it allows uh, young writers who might not have been seen or heard um, access to audience, access to, you know, gives them, it empowers them. To, to speak their truth. And, and uh, there's nothing in the world like reading your own stuff uh, in a public setting. Uh, it's, it's both thrilling and absolutely terrifying sometimes. Why terrifying? <laughs> well, if you mean it, if you mean um, what you say, and if you're putting yourself into the words on the page, then it can't, it, it can't be anything else but frightening to share that part of yourself. You're burying uh, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to ask you to bury yourself. <laughs> okay. I have found this one poem from you, and maybe you can tell me where it's from, which compilation. Yeah. There have been three thus far with one coming soon? Uh, it's four. Um, with, there have been uh, yeah, four. And there'll be a new one coming out in a couple of years. Okay, Map to the Stars you have right in front of yeah. you. That's the latest. Yes. The, uh, a big one was The Big Smoke. Yes. There was Mixology. Mm-hmm. And the other one slips my mind. It's okay, it was the Devil's Garden. The Devil. That's yeah. way back, 2003, yeah. I yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you were a, a young punk. <laughs> that's right. A, a young, <laughs> a young uh, poetry slam uh, participant, yeah. probably. Yeah. Huh? And that's and it reads that way. Yeah. It reads like a book written by someone who is in their late twenties. Well, here's this poem that I found from uh, one of the compilations. It's called Central Avenue Beach. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ring a bell. Yeah. And this is uh, maybe the second or third stanza. I just liked it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I'm not going to tell you why right now, but I'm going (laughs) to ask you to read it. And do you see it right there? It's between the two lines. I'd be glad to. Have at it. Every town around here has a central avenue, complete with blustery flags and home-cooked meals, blank storefronts, and churches next to other churches, lake light filtering through their stained glass windows, mostly sunny afternoons after 3 p.m., steeples one after another like the Great Lakes waves trying to blink constant sand out of wet eyes, 
And at night, all of the avenue lights up. No street lights, but stars and moon blinking in agitated water while the industrial lights on the fringes dim like blank faces traced in constellations. Thank you. No, thank, I'm, I'm, thank you for reading it. I like that. Uh, what I find interesting is, and I've seen this with other poets, mm. you're sort of a more restrained fellow, both in the uh, uh, volume of your voice mm. and your overall body actions. But poets, when they read, remind me of violinists. Because you ever see violinists playing, their whole body is just rocking forward, backward, side to side. It's like they're playing with their entire bodies. When you were reading just now, you were reading with your body. <laughs> and while I was trying to stay close to the microphone, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, there goes that great theory. <laughs> no, no but, but you're right. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, but you know, a poem is sort of the body enacted in many ways. And that particular poem was part of a, a series that was um, commissioned by the National Park Service mm -hmm. in conjunction with uh, the Academy of American Poets. And they picked 50 poets, um, one from each state, to write a poem about one of the national parks. And I was so excited about this because I'm not, um, I don't frequently write about the, about the environment uh -huh. or about, you know, about the geography around us. Um, and so it, was, it seemed to be a great opportunity, first of all, but I didn't realize um, almost all of the parks I was thinking about writing about were state parks. Uh -huh. And they wanted it to be one of the federal, you know, yeah. one of the uh, national parks. We only have two. No, yeah. three, we have three, excuse and me. And they're, they're just naming the dunes as a federal... So that's what that's, that's about. Ah, that's about the dunes. Yeah. The crazy thing about the dunes, though, is it's, there's a, um, a failed nuclear plant. And when yes. I say failed, it's, yeah. you know, they, they wanted it to be one, and it's not. Right. Um, that big, ugly thing with its <laughs> cooling tower right there. It's such a beautiful area. And then there's this, uh, like, dystopic structures standing there hundreds of feet high yeah yeah it's just really it's just so unfortunate because that space is gorgeous now it was it was really wonderful to learn about the um, the the ecological systems up there and um the ways in which uh, it has been the target of industrialists for hundreds of like for a couple of hundred years they've tried people have tried to build things because um in that area because it's a great uh, jumping off point between yeah. Chicago and and Gary and and some of the other cities around lakes like mm -hmm. uh, you know, Cleveland. And once they got the you know, once you were able to go from one great lake to another, it became you know prime real estate. Right. Um, but somehow we've been able to protect it. Here we are talking about essentially current events mm -hmm. and real things that are happening in the real world. But it's poetry. Yeah. You're describing this. And so the way I look at it, this, what you just read to me, this stanza, uh, it, it, it sort of a, it's out of a nonfiction book in a way. <laughs> it's describing a kind of a town, a kind of a street, a kind of a neighborhood. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of uh, Carl Sagan, his mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. They were considered poetry, but yet they were nonfiction. They were yeah. instructive, informative, you know, yeah. authoritative. Yeah. But they were art. Just like this, oh, I appreciate being lumped in with Carl Sagan. That's that's uh, he is what his book, The Demon Haunted World. I don't know if that was yes. one of my one of my favorite um, delightful guess, book. Yeah, just excellent, excellent. Uh, A scene. candle in the dark. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly. That's what I, I when I first started teaching. I used to teach. There was an essay from The Demon Haunted World. 
about the ways in which um, humans see themselves uh -huh. in everything as a way to make things less frightening. What so would that? That's right. You know, so we see the familiar. Uh, yeah, we see a, we see a face on the moon. Actually, you know, I just call it the Demon Hunt World. The essay is actually the man in the moon and the face on Mars. Yes, because uh, remember the face <laughs> on Mars was really big at one time. Yeah. It was, every time you went to the grocery store, you'd see those <laughs> those tabloid papers. That's right, yeah. that's right. It's it's all part of, um, you know, actually, we, we, you mentioned Matt for the Stars um, earlier. That part of that book is fascinated with space and astronomy yeah. and the ways that it manifested in the 70s and 80s which is very different from now but yeah. when you would see it you know it's been proven there are t you know there we've seen train tracks on mars you know this <laughs> kind of stuff um which is you know has been proven to be other otherwise now but right. as, as a child you know as, as as a young person being inundated with this kind of beautiful imagination of space um carl sagan made a lot of sense to me now how do you write a poem? Do you use pen and paper, or do you use a computer even? I use pen. I use a, I use paper and pencil. You do. Yeah, I use pencil, and so I write everything out in a notebook, and then I type it up eventually. I'm in a notebook, it. a specific, because uh, yeah. uh, there's a little bit of an imagination in me that sees your home or your office is just littered with little scraps of paper. <laughs> so there's, there's that too. Um, yeah. my, my home office actually is broken up into to spaces, like workspaces. Huh. So I have a desk with my, my, my computer and everything where I, I type my poems or work on my essays or whatever. I have a DJ set set up in my office that I spend time with when I'm, when I, if I feel stuck and can't work through an idea, I'll go DJ for a while. Ah. I've got a space where I, I, um, I'm working on a graphic novel, and I'm, uh -huh. I'm working with an illustrator. But to figure out how to write it, I originally had to draw some of it. I have absolutely no aptitude for for visual art, but I've got all this. So I've got it's like a I don't know like a child's uh, art station where they've got glue and scissors, yeah. <laughs> and you know. So I have these different spaces in my my office where I work. What a way to teach young people through the graphic mm -hmm. novel. Yeah, it's, it, it was, you know, I think coming up, um, and there's a little bit of age difference between us, but I think we both have um, had seen the trajectory of graphic art. Yeah. And, you know, so there's, I remember, you know, collecting my, my Spider-Man and X-Men comics <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. And then at some point in the 80s, it was around the time when The Watchmen came out. Yeah. Uh, the form of the graphic novel yes. uh, sort of reified and became a viable way to, to you know, tell a story to educate and to now, pass along a message. Yeah. And now, I mean, oh, it's just, I'm so excited to be working on this graphic because it's, I feel Whose like. Whose idea? Um, what was my idea? Okay. Um, went, so the big smoke, um, it took me eight years to write um, because of all of the research that I had to do around Jack Johnson. And um, one of the things that became clear to me early in the research process was that there was too much material that needed to be addressed for one book. It's like this is too much. A story is too amazing, um, mm -hmm. and it's too capacious for one for one collection of poems. Now, uh, it, it, before you go on, the yeah. big smoke, one of your big selling oh, compilations, it's centered around this fellow, Jack Johnson, who you have described as a true American creation. Yes. In case anybody out there doesn't know who Jack Johnson is, who was Jack Johnson? Yeah. Well, well, Jack Johnson is a an amazing and very fascinating uh, figure. He was um, the first African-American heavyweight champion of the world. 
And right. so he won the heavyweight title in 1908 um, by beating a guy named Tommy Burns. Uh-huh. Um, and that, you know, up to that point, no African-American fighter had been given the opportunity to fight for the heavyweight title. I could imagine um, there were restrictions against white and black boxers getting together in the ring. So there, there weren't, there, there, legally, no, but, uh, so, you know, well, like, yeah. So there, <laughs> they used to call a draw in the color line. Yes. And so uh, black and white boxers would, um, they would fight all the time, yeah. um, just not for the heavyweight title. So there was right. a heavyweight title that was just black fighters, and there was another heavyweight title that was just white. It was very segregated. Now, is Jack Johnson the fellow for whom there was then a need of the Great White Hope. That's exactly who it was. That's the Great a, White Hope was um, well. The, so there were there were many Great White uh-huh. Hopes. Um, I mean, they, they just a parade of white fighters. Yeah. Um, the the great American novelist Jack London uh-huh. made the call. He was in, he was he was if he was nothing if not a man of his time. He was you know yeah. so he was pretty virulent racist, and yeah. he, so he was um, ringside when. Um, Jack Johnson won the heavyweight title. Um, they fought in Sydney, Australia uh-huh. in 1908, and they stopped the fight before he knocked the guy out because they didn't want anybody to see it. So um, Tommy wow. Burns. And so I, I'm, so be, I'm, I'm telling this in a very convoluted way, but I want to make sure I get this in. Yeah. Um, so Jack Johnson was six foot two, uh-huh. about 220, and, and when he was in his best fighting shape, and Tommy Burns, who he beat for the heavyweight title, was five foot seven and one hundred and seventy five pounds. Huh. Um, back then, anybody who was over one hundred and seventy pounds was a heavyweight. So you could have been six hundred pounds, <laughs> exactly. and you would have been in the same group yeah, with yeah. Tommy Burns. Yeah, and so you imagine a six foot two man standing in the same ring with a five foot seven man. Yeah. You know, he looked like a giant. He was. He was bigger than the other fighters, but right. he, he looked like a giant. He carried he was a better boxer than any of his contemporaries. Um he just happened to also be black. So um the Great White Hope was Jack London saying somebody has to come back and beat this black man to get the title back for the white race. To make America great again. <laughs> See it all comes around. <laughs> it was like you know, I remember when I was working on the book, I was like, and this is isn't that far off from some of the rhetoric we have now yes. because, because President Obama was in office. Right. And so some of the, just like, I mean, the kinds of, it seemed like 1920s racist attacks that the president endured. Um, it was the same kind of attacks Jack Johnson endured. These um, racist cartoons yes. of the president, like, you know, rendered as if he's, you know, some kind of uh, primate. An animal. Yeah, this happened all the time to Jack Johnson in newspapers. Um it, you know, not like somebody's backwater Mississippi right. newspaper either. I'm talking about the L.A. Times yes. and places like that, where they would you know, run these utterly, unbelievably racist cartoons about Jack Johnson just because he was a good boxer and just because he was black. So um, one of the things that uh, that I learned while I was working on that that um, this project is the the more <laughs> things change, the more they stay the same. Um, Jack Johnson's parents were um, slaves. So he was the first generation after emancipation. A free man. Mm-hmm. And he behaved that way. He had, like, you know, he was married to a white woman. Right. He had, uh, like, just to drive these fast cars and dress in wonderful clothes. It would just infuriate the people yeah. who, who never wanted. Don't throw that in our face. Exactly. Exactly. Isn't so, that bizarre? Yeah. So, so working through the project, um, it became clear really early that Jack Johnson was too big for one book. And so I decided that I would split it into two. 
and The Big Smoke is the first one, and the graphic novel is the second one. Aha! And so when this graphic is finally finished, it will be sort of, I'll finally complete this project. Can you say who the illustrator is? I can't because we're still working on the contracts, uh-huh. but I've been working uh-huh. with this, this wonderful illustrator for about a year. When you write a poem, when you're writing, and first off, do you have a discipline? Do you write a certain amount of time each day? I don't. Um, I used to. And then at some point, and, and, you know, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm blaming her, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> when my daughter was born, everything changed. Now, how old is she? She's 12 now. Oh. Um, and so it has been uh, by far the, the most wonderful thing I've ever been involved with to watch her grow and become this brilliant little human being. Um, but, you know, when she was a baby, I used to write every day at the same time. You know, the ways that I was always told, you write every day, writers write every day, and it's just, that's just not necessarily possible. Um, not everyone has the luxury or the privilege to sit down for two yeah. hours a day and write. Yeah, because um, it is time. And what people don't understand, I've been a professional writer since 1983. Mm-hmm. And what people don't understand is even when you're not sitting at your keyboard or with your pen in your hand, you're writing in exactly. your head. You're saying it. You're going through it. You're singing mm-hmm. it. I like to think of uh, the words I write as songs. Yeah, that's a really great way to think about it because everything we do, this conversation, is is influencing the writing later. Yes. Um, the the writing I was doing this morning is influencing the conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, so they're, they're, it's all intertwined if we allow it to be. And maybe that's the that's the practice for me is figuring out how to intertwine my my entire life, writing teaching, being a father, trying to be a husband, trying to be an active basketball player, a decent, you know, pet owner. Do you play play against Ross Gay? You know, I have. In fact, we shoot around now. He's a little bit taller. (laughs) We played at some point, and and Ross elbowed me on the top of my head when we were trying to get a rebound. I thought, you know, you're so tall, your elbow is the same height as my (laughs) (laughs) head. I don't think we should play against each other anymore. (laughs) Uh, You know, I just, I love Ross. He is a beautiful poet. Speaking of poets, you've mentioned the daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Her mother, your wife, Stacy Lynn Brown. Yes. She's also here at IU. Yes, she is. She's she's my colleague in the MFA program, and she's uh, a a superb poet. And I can say that um, because I get to see her stuff frequently, but I also can say that without bias because she was a great writer when I met her. Did you say she's got something new coming out? She does. She has a new book coming out next year called The Shallows, and it'll be out, I believe, in October. Right. Um, and so this is it's it's a a heartbreaking heartbreaking book um, about illness and about family and uh, um, you know the ways those these are true stories. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The ways the way those things intersect. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really. It's really something. I'm, I'm really happy for her and excited for the poems to be in the world. How did you kids meet? Rodney Jones, one of my thesis directors, um, introduced us. And um, he, he said, you know, I don't know if I should introduce you to, to Stacy or not. because This is at SIU, Southern uh, Illinois University. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, um, we were actually, you know, we were actually in New Orleans. And, uh-huh. and, and he said, you know, I don't know if I should introduce you to her or not because you two are, you know, too much alike. <laughs> which is, you know, um, true and not. Sometimes that's a bad mix, being too much alike. Yeah. But so far, so good. Yeah, yeah. We've been been the other 15 years, so. Now, Rodney Jones, 
uh, has described you. It's very interesting. <laughs> he, too, is a, a noted poet. Yes. I'm going to read this. I, I, I bet <laughs> I'm going to turn your face red. Are you ready? Yeah. Adrian Matika plays the language like a horn with a cool inventiveness and bravura phrasing, yet his poems are as notable for their humanity as their flourishes and riffs at the borders of expression. His singular gift is to write outside the usual habits of communication and to deliver again and again the inside story, the testament of a life. He said that about you. You know, he's he is such a generous human being. Rodney and I... Um, let me just say this. First of all, that's that is embarrassing, um, but in the good way. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm 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 grateful for his words. Um, but I, the the last year I was in in graduate school, the last semester I should say, um, I only took two classes, and they were both independent studies with Rodney. <laughs> so, and we wouldn't, we didn't, you know, he gave me some books to read. We go play pool and talk about and talk about poetry. And I learned more playing pool and talking to Rodney about poetry than I probably ever have in any other instance, which is no disrespect to my other professors because they all taught me many things as well. There was a poet by the name of, and I hope I'm not destroying this name, Yusuf Komenyaka. Yes. Did I do well? You did. That's Hurrah. exactly how you pronounce his name. He's been a big influence on your stuff. Absolutely. And he, <laughs> we keep coming back to this. I know we were talking about this before we began, but the range and reach of the Indiana University MFA program <laughs> is extraordinary. And Yousef was a professor. He's another one. Yeah, he was a professor here at Indiana back in the 90s, in the early 90s. And so I never got to study with him here. I met him while he was here. Um, and I didn't get to study with him until... Well, you heard him read. And I here's did. a quote from you about him. When I heard him read, I knew I wanted to write poems. Yeah, I wanted to do what... It, I didn't even know what a poem was yet, but I wanted to do what he was doing. And no so, kidding. Yeah, I had... So that must have been when I was 19. I'd never... I mean, I think maybe I'd read Shakespeare's sonnets. I think I might have read some Langston Hughes at some point. Um, but I didn't really know anything about poetry. I never never thought to write or thought to read poetry until I came to Bloomington. What about his work got under your skin? Oh, it's just, it, well, it sounds like the distillation of music into words. Um, he is, he's got such a, well, he's an incredible, I think he's the greatest living poet we have. I just think he's immaculate. And for anyone who wow. is listening and does not know Yousef's work, you can check out Neon Vernacular, which was his collected, or selected poems back in 1995. I'm going to repeat that. Uh, Neon Vernacular. Neon Vernacular. All right. Um, he's also got a collected poems. He has this gorgeous book called Deng Kai Dao. It's about the Vietnam where he was in Vietnam, ah. um, and it's incredible. Uh, but Yusef is, a, is a, a writer of great range and also great musical sensibility. And that's more than anything, I think what I valued in poetry early on was the sound of it. Um, it didn't even matter to me if, it made, if it, I understood it. As long as it sounded good, I felt like I was leaving with some kind of an experience. I'm gonna read a tweet uh, from your Twitter account, uh, dated Monday, December 18th, 2.58 p.m. Everyone should read Emily Dickinson because A, she is a poetry boss, and B, she saw our era of bluster mistaken as wisdom 150 years in advance. Now, he, you quote her. Why don't you read that quote? Do you see it right down there? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
There are those who are shallow intentionally and only profound by accident. And that was actually a quote from one of her poems written on the back of an envelope. Indiana Poet Laureate Adrian Matika, thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Michael. It's great to talk with you. 